Hello and welcome to this episode of the PE podcast. My name is Jack Jacob and I am your host. In this episode, I'm joined by Philippa Winter, who's the CIO at Bolton NHS Foundation Trust. We start our conversation discussing why Philippa wanted to work for the NHS in the first place, which was ultimately because her brother was in a serious motorbike accident when she was very young, and really watching the impressive work his caregivers gave him really spurred Philippa on onto a career for the NHS, which started as an occupational therapist. Philippa also acknowledges a year out doing a management trainee programme for a major supermarket as a real fundamental year in her career. It gave her an excellent grounding in leadership, business, customer services, data, finance, amongst others. Philippa really values life experiences and hard work and recognises how important various stages of her own journey were in getting to where she is today. Please do enjoy this episode as we get to know the person behind the job title. Hey everybody, before we get into this conversation with Philippa, I just want to give a massive shout out to these episode sponsors, which are Improvata and Common Time. Common Time have launched a new brand for the healthcare market, which goes live this week called InTime. ICOM, a next generation clinical communications app produced by Common Time, has demonstrated itself as the market leading application to help replace aging bleep technology currently delivered by pages. Streamlining clinical communications whilst providing a secure and most importantly integrated clinical messaging tool that provides real time instant messaging for all staff. Common Time understands the structure of NHS organizations. As such, ICOM allows its users to interact as individuals, in groups, or directly using their roles and responsibilities within their team. The application hosts impressive features that include automating workflows, escalating or diverting any undelivered or unactioned requests, as well as automating the booking of beds and operating theatres. Common Time are now working in partnership with eight NHS trusts in helping them to achieve their overarching digital strategy. Improvata, the healthcare IT security company, enables healthcare securely by establishing trust between people, technology, and information. The Improvata platform addresses critical compliance and security challenges whilst improving productivity and the patient experience. By removing barriers created by security and streamlining clinical workflows, care providers are able to improve efficiency and enhance care delivery by focusing on what matters most, the patient. Improvata is proud to support digital maturity in the NHS, with solutions deployed in 70% of NHS trusts. For more information, please visit www.improvata.co.uk. Cool. Well, Philippa, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Um, just want to start with um, a bit about you, your upbringing. I know you're a proud northerner. Um, so, so talk to me about where you grew up and, and your kind of childhood. Okay, I, um, I'm from a place called Clayton Moors near Accrington. You've probably all heard about the Accrington Stanley Milk adverts. Who are they? Who are they? But, uh, yeah, well, I know exactly <laughs> who they are. So, uh, so, yeah, so I grew up in Clayton Moors. Um, happy family. I'm uh, mum, dad, older sister and older brother. Uh, went to school in Accrington, uh, church school. Um, and um, so, yeah, I don't know what else to say. On the edge of the Ribble Valley, you know, my childhood was playing in the woods all day, coming back just to eat. You know, lovely, lovely times, really. Lots of friends uh, and lots of outdoor time, really. It, those were the years before any mobile phones, before any games. I think yeah. I was 11 when my dad got his first BBC computer and yeah. I started 
play some of the games on that. But um, but yeah, really happy childhood. Oh, good, good. And and was you academic in school? What was your kind of schooling like? How did you do grades wise? Um, I, I didn't do too bad. I was always classed as being a bit gregarious, um, a bit daft. Um, but I was an average grade student. I left uh, school, secondary school, with a number of all levels. I was the last year to do all levels uh, before GCSEs came in. Um, but I failed my English, but I got all my sciences, all my maths. Uh, I was like in set two for maths and sciences, but struggled with more of a written language uh, subject. So I went on to college. Um, I did um, GCSEs at college, got another five GCSEs, but failed my English again. Um, started to wonder what's going wrong here. Um, but yeah. then I ended up with like 14 equivalent all levels. Um, but no English. So I did, um, I'll, I'll talk you to you why I did BTEC in nursing, but I went to do a health studies BTEC. Um, and then I did English at night school. I did mature English, which I was successful to get. But that was my third time trying. So yeah. although I have a number of uh, qualifications, English was really tricky for me. Um, yeah. And um, I found out at university that I'm dyslexic. There we go then. So that, that, that explains it a little bit then. Yeah, yeah, rather than just being daft at school. <laughs> yeah, I, do you know what? I, I've always struggled with with kind of my English, particularly writing. Um, um, it takes me so long to, you know. I, do you know what, actually? I'm glad you said that because one thing I wanted to talk about was if someone sends me a really long email, it actually gives me anxiety. Like, oh, my God, I've got a reply to, to all of that. Like, see, like when I text on WhatsApp, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but I'll send loads of little texts um, rather than a blocky paragraph. And I like it when people reply to me with loads of little texts because then I can reply to each bit and I just find it easier to digest. With email, what I have to do is I have to click, if it's like bullet points, I'll copy and paste the bullet points and then write my reply to each bit and leave it in red. Um, so so that, that's how I work around it. So yeah, completely resonate with, with you on that one. So when you was growing up yeah, then, I go on. So I agree, and I think the one thing that I told students, obviously when I was a therapist and a therapy manager, um, is is that you will find your way, and you will find ways to adapt. And I'm the same, I write quite succinctly, and the beauty of finding out at university was then finding ways to adapt. And, and um, in, in medical notes, there's a way of writing, which is called soap notes, which is really succinct, you use subjective, objective analysis and plan which was really good for me because I could be really, really tight on what I wanted to say. Whereas if I start to write a paragraph, I write the biggest load of dribble and waffle. Um, and then you sort of think to yourself, like when I get to the role where I'm in now, is that there is a level of anxiety and I've just completed my master's and there was a level of anxiety there because academic writing doesn't come easy or is comfortable to me. Mm. Um, you can adapt and you, as long as you're aware and you get certain things checked and... Uh, you can do it, but I am definitely not a word wizard. I'm, I'm more verbal and more expressive and more pictorial in the way that I I get my points across. Yeah, hence hence my voice notes to you. <laughs> exactly. I loved it. I thought this is this is great. My husband does that to me sometimes, um, and it's hilarious of how it, how it comes out, you know, on the phone, especially when you're uh, in the car. <laughs> so did you when you was um you know growing up taking it back to kind of school age 
Did you ever think that you'd be leading like an IT division, digital division of an NHS organization? Or was that almost, you know, you, you, you didn't know about IT and digital and, and so on? Um, I, I did know about IT because my dad, my dad, my dad is um, an industrial chemist and was always, we were always one of the first families, like we were one of the first families to get the big TV, you know, flat screen rather than the big massive hoofing TV. Yeah, we were yeah. one of the first families to get a video VHS and we used to go to the video shop at the weekends, treats. Uh, and as I say, he got um, a BBC computer and he always um, explored with us. We were always really practical. I was always in the shed with my dad. Um, so technology was always something and he was into steam trains and, you know, making them himself and tugboats. And so we were always building and doing stuff with my dad. That was normal. Um, so technology was always around us and we always liked it stereo and music. And so from that point of view, tech is a general thing was always in my life um, but I didn't think obviously I would be in the position I'm in now and then uh, I always wanted to be a nurse um, and that's why I did the health studies at college because obviously in school I wanted to do nursing it was at the time when project 2000 was in for nursing um, but I had a real profound event in my life when I was probably first year at secondary school when my brother had a really bad motorbike accident and that was the turning point in me wanting to give something back in the NHS. Um, he nearly died, he didn't yeah. um, and the surgeon did a lot for him. He wanted to be a forester, he was 17 at the time, um, he was knocked off his bike and there was an ambulance at the time there which put a pregnancy clip on his artery which saved his life. We actually got to the scene because the taxi driver wrote us so I got to the scene with my mum and dad to see my brother when he was bleeding to death. Um, and then they were going to amputate his leg and they didn't. So I watched all this and my brother was in hospital a long time. He was one of the first people in the UK to have a frame on his leg and he had his hip bump on his leg and, you know, the splints and just absolutely amazed me. And that's when I knew I wanted to be a nurse. Wow. So then, um, obviously, then joining and doing the BTEC course, um, was what I wanted to be. We had a talk from an, from an occupational therapist and I was like, wow, this is it. This is what I want to do. You know, it's the holistic approach. It's got the, the psychiatry elements, but the physical elements. It was all the splints and my brother had lots of splints, but it was all the rehabilitation. That's yep. truly what I, thought I wanted to do. So that's why at college, I wanted to become then an occupational therapist. And that's really the background to what brought me into the NHS. Wow. So it's just all, you know, you saw that amazing work and you thought, I want to be part of that. I want to be part of that organization. So, but your, your, your first role though. So you was, you went to your university, didn't you, to then study uh, a degree in occupational therapy. I did. Yeah. And, 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 but your first, your first job was while she was at uni, wasn't it? As a management trainee at one of the large supermarkets. It was, but before that, what it was is again, um, I was on my BTEC and yeah. um, to get into university, you needed to have two merits um, at your BTEC, um, which I did and obviously work experience and it was quite competitive to get into uni and at that time I was a student at Sainsbury's, um, I was a section leader uh, in Burnley um, at a big supermarket. Uh, and I was going up the ranks and they said to me, how about going for training management for So I thought, well, I've not lost anything. I don't know if I've got into university. 
it was always quite difficult for me to get the high academic grade mm. uh, that I needed, not knowing I was dyslexic at that time. So I applied for university and I applied for the training management and I got through all the recruitment process. Um, didn't hear anything from university because then it was different. It wasn't the clearinghouse quite the same. Didn't hear anything back, so I thought I've not got in. So I started, got a car, started working in Manchester as a training manager. Um, and about six weeks after I started again, we didn't have mobile phones in that age, which shows how old I am. Um, my dad um, got a message to say he wanted to ring me on the canteen phone, on you know the public phone, and he did. And um, and he said, "There's a letter come from university." Uh, saying there's no accommodation for you at Liverpool and I was like you know what is this so anyway my dad rang up when I got home it transpired there was a number of us that our letters had got lost or oh, mixed wow. up in. and I had actually got into university um, so I had a year out so because I was six years into my job I'd bought a car um, so I said to my dad you know it was about a grant and things like that so I said right I'll have I'll, I'll do my year so I did, and it was one of the hardest years uh, of work, but really, really good grounding, I have to say. I owe a lot to uh, that company and the training that they gave me in that, last, in that 12 months. Yeah. Um, around business, around, you know, customer service, competition, you know, all those different things, data, financials. Uh, I got a really good grounding. So, and then I left and went to university, which was really what my passion was, even though I'd thought that, well, I'm going to retail and try and get my own store. Um, I went to university and it was in my second year of university uh, after some placements that they talked about my note writing and they were saying, you know, you're brilliant at what you do, but your note writing lets you down. So I had an assessment in my um, second year and I did the test over some of my fiance who's my husband now took me to Liverpool for the test and I came out and said oh they were so easy there's nothing wrong with me and then I got the results and they said you're dyslexic and dysgraphic and it's quite significant yeah um, but I got to university I was in my second year um, and then they just gave me help in my final year about how to be succinct in the way I was and obviously about reading as well so I needed extra time and exams um, yeah. and, and I qualified um, so yeah. I have to say, although it took me a little bit longer, it took me longer from school because I need to go for my English, um, obviously then going to St. Base, every single part of it was so important in my journey because mm. it's all about that learning and that experience. And I think by the time I got to university, I was 20, um, I was a bit ready to knuckle down, you know, because I'd done a year and I'd done a hard year of long hours. Um, so I was really invested in, you know, what my future was and what I wanted to achieve. Uh, I had a good time at university, but don't, don't think I didn't. But um, I think it worked out really well and I think it shaped me for who I am today. Yeah, definitely. So going back to um, to the, the management training thing, was, was you always picked to do that? Did you show like leadership qualities that they picked up on say, well, actually, you know, you could be one of our managers with with a with it with some with some coaching and some training and and some advice yeah. and so on. So yeah, so I was a I was a just a normal student working at weekends uh, at Sainsbury's, and then they asked me to become what they call a section leader. Yeah. Um, which is obviously you know responsible at that time, and because I worked late, and you know there was only certain one manager in. You know you had certain responsibilities to cover in your area and I, I built as a section leader of the produce section. Yeah. Um, so again, and they gave me some training and I was what, 
18, 17, 18, um, and they give you a lot of training. It was really good grounding uh, and responsibility at such an age as well. So I definitely think that that did shape me. Um, but obviously they identified that leadership in me at that age. Yeah. But I think, um, you know, it's all around experience and about people. I'd been a Queen's Guide. You know, I was a Queen's Guide at age 12. My mum and dad were really into scouting and I've been camping since I was six weeks old. And I think, um, you know, it's that wealth of experience and you see children today doing the Duke of Edinburgh and things like that. I think they're all really, really talent building and, and, and personality building as well. And mm. I think some of those things that I was exposed to and that, that guides and, um, you know, clubs being from ages, you know, it's around that leadership, it's around that teamwork, isn't it? And about doing things together, which is really important, but doing it in a nice way. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. I think, I think, um, <sighs> children these days it's not as 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 uh as done these days right because you know you, they've got other distractions like ipads and tv and games and so on and so forth whereas um you know back when when you was younger you know you had the outside and you had your bikes and you had your and, and even actually you know i'm probably one of the last generations that because i i was i think maybe so what year did the iphone come out like 2009 something like that and that's when really kind of technology advanced from from kind of having a you know a personal computer in your hand you know all day basically, um, and so you know I, I I was one of the last generations that like you was out in the woods a lot building camps out on the bike you know you used to find your friends by where the bikes were were left um, um, and you know see a big pile of bikes outside someone's house or you know on the street corner or whatever and um, you know I so I've got three daughters and. I just think, you know, are they going to have those those kind of character building um, skills that perhaps I was exposed to because I was in the scouts and I went into the, in the army cadets and, and those kind of things. And I completely resonate that they are character building and they you know, teach you other things, have a really good life skills like resilience and, and yeah. taking self-pride in your, you know, in the, in the uniform that you wear. And, um, and, and also as well, you know, like, my mum would would go to work from when we was 11 12 in the summer holidays and we would we would be left at home and we'd fend for ourselves and we were absolutely capable of doing that but if you knew of an 11 12 year old these days getting left at home there would be uproar um there wouldn't be and it, and it's it's crazy that you know the world's gone a little bit soft on on kids and, and and for right and wrong reasons right but and i think that people do it all for the all for the right reasons and that's you know to protect them um but at the same time i do have concerns that people will lack fundamental cum communication skills and leadership skills and um mm. that kind of drive and get up and go and so on um that we almost had to have when we were kids because otherwise you know you're a wimp as my granddad would say you know stop being a wimp and get on with it type thing so so yeah I'm, I'm hoping through covid like i've worked obviously all through covid but my sons have been at home um and my girlfriend and they've done a lot of things that they wouldn't have necessarily done a lot of uh, hobbies um you know going for walks and and i'm hopeful that really in these last few months that people have reflected on on this time and, and how we spend that time and how you spend it as a family, but also mm. how, how you, and we've been so lucky with the weather about 
being outside, you know, in these sort of circumstances. And I know that you can't necessarily go out and play with your friends, but there's so many opportunities to do things differently, isn't there? And I'm hoping yeah. that people may have thought about resetting that in the last couple of months as well. Yeah, yeah, I certainly have. You know, I've started running, got out my bike, you know, I bought a really nice bike last year and then didn't didn't use it for what it was, you know, made for. It's like a mountain bike and stuff. And I got out and I got on it and got really into it and stuff. And then as as we've kind of picked stuff back up, as PE's picked stuff back up, um, you know, launching our new stuff, doing the podcast and stuff, it's dwindled away again. And I've I'm, and I'm conscious that I don't let that happen. Um and and I and I stay active and I stay out, you know, get outside again and and so on. But last, you know, two weeks have been I've not really done much, but really conscious of what you just said that yeah. that yeah that we do because um yeah it's it, it was it was it was refreshing it was like a like what you said a reset it was like a, a major mm-hmm. reset um and you know the i don't know if this is me just speculating and because but you know is there any is it, is it it's a coincidence right that all the planes stopped all the pollution stopped and you know then we saw less clouds and it was more sunny and so on and so forth. and i don't know if that if it is linked or not but um you know i hope i hope the world doesn't go back to the way it was because i think it's been and everyone say hello to each other and things like that as well you know I've, yeah. you can't walk past them without you know them nodding and saying hello and and you know we've got to know our neighbors from the thursday night clap and all that kind of stuff like it's been lovely it's been really nice so so yeah anyway right let's move on so um your your role to you know so so you 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 then qualified an occupational therapist and and worked um in the nhs then um from you know after you qualified right so was that mid 90s 94 94 you qualified so oh, yeah. and, then, and then you worked um as an occupational therapist therapist for about 15 years is that right uh is that how long it was i um i was therapy manager up until 2012 13 yeah. so from um but yeah i suppose as with, a, with management as, roles in there as well right but, but. but even as management, because I was a specialist in, in hand therapy, um, you know, as my final before management, um, I still did uh, put my hand into certain things, right, when people were on leave or if there was something quite complex that I was still advised upon because of just, you know, the skill I had in some of the specialists splinting. Um, but yeah, probably about 15 years. Yeah, so I um, qualified in 94, moved down south, uh, got married in the summer, uh, and my first job was at St Albans and Hemel Hospitals as a basic grade. Yeah, um, really, really great, great living down there. Obviously, great opportunities, some real good hospitals, but obviously living down south, living the life. Um, as a newly married, my first home, um, my first dog. Instead of going on honeymoon, a big German shepherd. Was your husband um, from from down south? Then is that why you moved down? No, he's he was in the Met place. Right, okay. Uh, but he's from Scotland. Right, okay. So why we relocated back to Lancashire, back to near one of our families before we had the family. But um, so yeah, he joined the Met when he was eighteen. Um, I met him when he was eighteen and a half. Um, and and we've been together twenty six years. Been married this year. But wow. um, so yeah, worked at St Albans. Um, worked there as a basic grade and then after six months uh, already got promotion. Um, I also started to do specialist um, clinics and was really into splinting and my brother had a lot of splints so it was a real passion for me. Um, and then I started to work privately. 
um, as a hand therapist across London and then I moved to the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital um, to be on their rotation as a senior um, OT, uh, which was a really, really wonderful work, working at a national centre like that sure. in the areas that I managed to work in. Um, so I went there particularly because I wanted to do peripheral nerve injuries and all the different kit around that. But I worked in pain management and then I worked in spinal injuries um, and then I moved back. But I have to say, although I was gutted to have spinal injuries as a rotation, it was one of the best jobs I've ever had in my life. Oh, good, good. And so then yeah. you've been in, then you went into more of a leadership role in, 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 in with, with a kind of clinical focus still. Um, and then your first kind of role that involved what I can gather from your kind of career history was, um, you're a therapy manager, but looked after business and information stuff, um, um, stuff. There we go. That's really technical, isn't it? Um, yeah. <laughs> um so talk to me about that. Cause that was your first dip in the toe then with, with regards to more of a, a tech based role, right? So yeah, so the business and information one was really more around um, demonstrating um, um, how we were managing to perform as a function or a business within the NHS yep. um, to look at um, how we could put all our performance because in the olden days and people from the NHS will know what Kerner is and Kerner was every day as a therapist or anybody you had to write down exactly who you'd seen whether it was face-to-face whether it was non-face-to-face and your whole week had to add up to your hours that you worked so it was right. a real labor intensive paper exercise <clears throat> um, so part of my job was to get that um, basically put electronic and so um, that role was to look at putting all our um, all our information electronically but also putting all our clinics electronically onto our past system because they were all in old paper diaries so that was my first job but not only that as well it was looking at outcome measures so that's around like patient satisfaction and outcome measures and that's about demonstrating that actually we're making a difference. So it was a lot more in that role around business and data and intelligence. Um, I would say that actually working in spinal injuries and then hand injuries was where I did more tech because yeah. I used to use a lot of technology to support around biofeedback, you know, environmental control with spinal injuries, um, about how they can manage the environment, you know, with neuro high level. Uh, tetraplegic um, and some of the kit around that that's what really got me interested in technology the mm. business part was more around the intelligence and about business and how we made ourselves more efficient and more effective sure makes sense makes sense and so then from there you've done a, like a project management role before your role as a ccio didn't you so i was so as there as as in my management uh, in therapies, I became a CCIO. And that was because there was a couple of us that were a little disruptive. And because I was the first to put You things, disruptive? Never. Was, yeah, in a positive way. Of course. Um, and really working with the teams around, really trying to drive what we were after as a, as a clinical service mm. and make tech support that, really. Yep. So I was asked to become a CCIO. And, um, what year was and, that? Them. What year was that? Oh gosh, you're asking me now. Uh, I think that was either 2011. Or was 10. that? Was that you? You must have been one of the like first group to become a CCIO then, because it's it's now really gaining traction as a job title, isn't it? You know, there was still trust, and there probably still is trust that don't have one, but certainly was 
two years ago, a lot of trusts that didn't have them. Um, so for you to have be a CCIO back then, almost 10 years ago, is... Yes, um, it is, it is, and I was one of the first, we were one of the first, so Rachel Dunscombe obviously was the one that set it up in our hospital, she was the CIO at the time. Right. Um, I already had a surgeon and an acute medical consultant. Um, the it was the ophthalmology surgeon that was the main CCIO. She wanted she had this idea about this multidisciplinary team, and <coughs> um, so they asked me into it. And we were the first MDT MDT team CIOs in the country, and we did a lot going around at the summer schools and talking about the benefits of not just having one individual and one. Um, you know, one thought on how you would drive informatics to yeah. support the clinical. Um, but not only that, as an MDT about coming from different professions, but we all came with different life experience. So David was really techie. Uh, Simon was really passionate about medicine and about how that was. And I came with my leadership and my business skills. So actually, and then we had a nurse, Brendan, um, who obviously brought those from A&E. So it was a real rich group of people that mm. brought a lot, not just the professional part, but actually their own um, individual skills as well. So it was really, really good. Sure, sure. So so that, that um, Chief Clinical Information Officer role then for you was... Um, do you think that really propelled you then into your kind of CIO career? Do you think if you'd never become a CCIO, do you think you'd ever, ever have been a CIO? No, no, no definitely not. No, no, because I don't think um, my whole career has been um, falling into really good opportunities. And whether it's because I've found them or they've found me, I'm, yeah. I'm not sure. And I do look at that. Um, but the CCIO role absolutely gave me the hunger around informatics and um, user engagement and user-centered design. So I, I, I started that and then I did um, my project management qualifications as CCIO and then got the opportunity to work more corporately in the organisation. So I worked, I was on to for two years from therapy manager. Um, because I got to therapy manager, th therapy manager was the clinical of where I wanted to be. Right. And I got there and uh, it was fabulous, but it was like, and so what? Because it was that I needed that change. I'd done a lot of projects as therapy manager um, in developing new ways of working and we'd gone into turnaround and I had to manage that, which was really difficult. Um, but it was that change part that I absolutely loved. So I went to work corporately as a program uh, project manager in elective care and I did theatre utilisation, reduction in clinics, uh, uh, ward closure um, to try and reduce costs across the bed base, which again gave me um, a real wealth of getting to know, I've obviously worked in the organisation a long time, but real key stakeholders across the whole of the organisation, which then has led me into a really good stead of CIO, because um, there's not many people across the organisation that I don't know. Yeah, of course, of course. I think it's quite, you know, but then IT projects, I can typically imagine, or, or projects for digital transformation or, or data-led or whatever it might have been, um, were led by those techie teams. And I think, you know, uh, and so many projects failed, right, in the NHS because they didn't have clinical buy-in and clinical engagement and um, looking at how does, how is tech the enabler, basically? You know, how can we enable people to either be treated better, work more efficiently or reduce costs and, and so on and so forth um so it's really quite innovative that that was that was you know happening 
as a as a kind of almost like a pilot model um, um, back then. And that was that that was for Bolton, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, yeah. yes, that was yeah. for. So you so say, how long have you been at Bolton for? Twenty-two years. There we go. Wow. Um, so you, no, are you you no, must you must be the long one of the longest serving people in the kind of senior leadership team. Uh, no, no. Uh, in in um, well, some of them are starting to retire. I'm not quite there yet. Um, but in IT, we've got a real great retention rate. So I've got somebody retiring this week that's done 28 years. Um, wow. Another person that's just done about 26. And I've got people who are still in, in service that have been there since they were 17 and the same age as me. Yeah. So uh, there's, there's quite a good retention rate. I suppose in the senior executives, there's been a lot of change. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's quite a lot of people at Bolton been there for a long time. Yeah, well, that that shows you how you know, the organisation and the culture, and um, you know the, the want to stay and and the want to improve constantly and so on. So, kudos to you. Um, so so moving then into then because you then become a was it was you so what I wanted to understand was was you a joint CIO with someone else or did you have a joint role as a CIO and a CCIO CCIO role? So so, so what it was um, obviously I was CIO CCIO. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I am a business acumen because I'd already been a senior manager is managing a business unit as the therapy department. Yeah. Um, and when Rachel left, I think it was because obviously I didn't have, um, I had my business um, evidence and being a therapy manager and I was credible there. So I think it was a little bit of a tester to say, you know, let's see how she does. So I did it because there was a deputy CIO at the time. Um, and so basically, I went in and we shared it. Okay, uh, makes sense. So, and then after that time, um, the job came up, and uh, I went for it. And we had a had a discussion um, that that was just the way it was, I suppose, because of the experience and and the relationship I built with him as well. So he remained my deputy until recently. He's just retired. Yeah. Amazing, amazing. So, so that was around what twenty fifteen that uh, we're up to about now. Yeah. So yeah. you're so so you know within three years or three and a half four years of of you getting that role, you then become um, you 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 award winning CIO, Digital Health CIO of the Year. What what was that as a moment like for you? Oh, it was um, just absolutely amazing. I think. Um, I couldn't quite believe it because that was in 2018 mm. and um, there is an element of me that has a bit of imposter syndrome. Well, I, I was going to ask this. I was going to say, was it <clears throat> is it a coming of age moment for you? You know, I am worthy. I come from a clinical background. I haven't got the route that these, you know, these traditional CIOs, techie backgrounds have got, but look what I've done and what what I've achieved. Yeah, absolutely. I still, I still have imposter syndrome sometimes every day, and I think that's what keeps me grounded. Um, but definitely at that time, and I was totally overwhelmed um, to to do that. And I think, I think it was because it was the age of, of, and there's more and more people, I suppose, like me that are coming with that clinical background into informatics, um, and, and that slant on it and that look and. And, you know, my absolute passion about that user-centered design, which is what it's all about. Mm. Um, so, but yeah, I did, I suppose I was a bit overawed by it um, because of that imposter syndrome and thinking, oh my goodness, there's so many great people out there that have lived and breathed 
informatics uh, mm-hmm. and does some wonderful jobs. How is this? So, so yeah, so I, 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 I suppose it'd be unrealistic to think that I don't doubt myself and I think sometimes that's what drives me forward and drives me forward to the next stage and what I do next um, and keeps you grounded. But, but yeah, I was, I was pretty shocked. And even now when I look back, I think, oh my goodness, um, you know, there was some great competition and how did I do that? Yeah. Oh, well, good for you. And, um, um, you know, I think that's when we probably around that time is when we first um, met you because it was in the November of 18 that we first met, I think, because you spoke at... I got it in the summer. I got I won put it in the summer. summer and then we started speaking shortly after that to yeah. you to speak at an event in um, in November, in the November uh, of 2018. So, yeah, what, three, four months after. Um, so, um, so, yeah, wow, incredible, incredible. So, um, and ha- was, there, was there any particular thing that you had achieved... Do you think that 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 got you that? What was the what was why why did they give it to, to you? Why was why was Philippa Winter the CIO of the year that year? Was there anything um project wise that you'd done or or was it just your journey and what you'd achieved? I, I think it was the journey and I think a big part of it was around um my style and engagement uh, and how I engage with people and that if you think about you know the what to report and then topple you know everything that they were saying I suppose I was I was the the picture of that wasn't I about bringing together that clinical and that informatics piece mm. and mm. um you know being that conduit between it so I think it was it was about that obviously I'd hit there I am a gregarious person, so obviously I love to meet people, and that networking is absolutely key for me because I'm I've got this real thrive to learn and learn from others. And if people have done it, then you know I want to know that. And I think so again because my personality, I probably did sort of go here I am and and let me know everything and everything about you, um, but also learn from that and take that into practice. So I think that's probably why when they said of why I did win. Was mm. more around uh, the, my style and because of obviously the clinical background. Yeah, sure, sure. So, how was it taken over from Rachel Dunscombe then um, when you when you when you got the role full time? Because obviously she, you know, she's uh, you know a figurehead for for um, for women in technology, particularly in 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 the NHS and healthcare in general. Um, how was it feeling? Was it a daunting task filling someone of that kind of magnitude and that 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 stature? Um, she's like a she's like a healthcare celebrity, isn't she? Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah. What was um, what was that like in terms of filling her shoes? So, so it, it was daunting, and, and you know, Rachel's one of my best friends. Um, so you know, and I love her to bits, and she's so blue sky and like, yes, she is. She's a rock star. Um, and it was daunted and I think that's why there was a test at first that I was I was acting um, because it was you know they were absolutely gutted to lose Rachel Um, and I had to really learn fast and hard Um, but I think the difference is is I am different to Rachel and we complement each other really well in the different skills that we've got and uh, with regards to being at Bolton and taking what she started in strategy and then delivering it yeah. I think um was was the success for me because it was actually I I did the deliverables um of what Rachel was set up 
um, and that helped me then demonstrate my credibility yeah, as a CEO, yeah. coming from a, from a different background, if you see what I mean. So, yeah. And I think it was because that engagement piece was absolutely critical to the stuff that we needed to deliver, including getting our electronic patient records point. So, yeah. yeah, so yeah, it was daunting, um, but it's important that we're all different, isn't it? We learn from, but also we utilize our skills. And I think, as I say, myself and Rachel complement each other really well in our differences. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and what's your leadership style then? So, what, 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 for, what for you is good leadership? So, good leadership for me is identifying people's strengths, um, giving them autonomy. Um, I have to say, you know, I would say I'm a little bit of a control freak, um, but not to the point where I don't let people have freedom to act. Yeah. And when I say control freak, I just say, you know, keep me in the loop. Um, I'll butt out if you want me to, but I'll also be there if you need to. But also don't ask me to come in at the last minute when sometimes it's too difficult to dig yourself out of a hole. Um, but engagement, honesty, um, you know, and even and understanding people's styles, and I think that's where it comes as being an occupational therapist and, and having the emotional intelligence to understand different people's ways and how they react and how you get different things out of different people. Mm. Um, but truly, my leadership is around engagement, honesty, and, and freedom to act from my staff yeah. at all levels. Yeah, yeah, incredible. Um, and... Yeah, is there any particular leader that you've worked under that that you know is is massively inspiring for you that has been a real pivotal person in your in your life and career I suppose because that's what leaders do they they don't just affect your career they affect your life as well good leaders I, I it, it's difficult to pick one person isn't it um I think what I like to do is pick the best out of a lot of people um, and I've got a lot of people who I look up to, um, you know, including my dad, um, you know, and the values that he has. Values are really important to me. Um, but I think for me, it's about getting the best and understanding what you like and don't like about different people uh, and reflecting on your own style and, and trying to understand how you can adopt some of those really good things. But it's got to be authentic. Um, and I think that's where a lot of it comes down to your values and your beliefs. Um, I think you need to, be, as I say, reflect and understand some of your behaviours. Um, but to pick one person would be really difficult because I'd say I'd pick the, pick the bits or the bits I don't like yeah. out of people and the things that I don't like are definitely the things that I don't want to see in my own style or leadership. Sure, sure. So you talk about values. How do you realise your own values? Because I think that's something that I find quite difficult is, you know, absolutely want to act with integrity absolutely want to um, be compassionate and show empathy and um, but at the same time I, I want the job delivered and I want to make sure that the people around me are delivering it to the standard that they should expect from themselves but I expect um, and hard work and all those other things right but I find it quite I find it difficult to not see it as potentially fluffy or um, you know, words for words sake, do you know what I mean? Um, so how do you identify your true values and live by them? So I, I think it's quite easy and okay. I'm next year. So I've had 50 years of thinking the things of what I've done wrong and what you do. But I think if, if, do you think it come at a certain age that you found it easy? 
I think every, I think over the last probably 20 years being a parent um, teaches you a lot um, but also just experience and experience with different people and different people's styles uh, and, and learning from that and being reflective I think it's really important I think when I was younger I was probably less reflective and I'm still a bit gung-ho and if you give me the baton I'm running with it but I'm not sure where I'm necessarily going but I'm going um, so that's that's the thing that I've been more reflective on uh, recently because obviously I need people to be with me rather than running all over the show yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think for me communication is really key and it's about managing expectations isn't it and I think if you've all got a value and you've all got a goal and actually if you've got a if you've got a combined goal and everybody understands what their impact is on that goal and they're signed up to that then you can't really go wrong but that comes down to real clear communication and management of each part of that so say in a project or in a team is understanding and being is having that intelligence and that emotional intelligence, isn't it, to understand where people are faltering and how you can pick them up and how they might need something different than the next person. Mm. But actually, if, you, if you're all really clear and you communicate, but you also have an open door to say to people, it's okay if you're struggling, mm. but come and let's talk through it and we'll find a way. And you use a coaching style to find a way. So I think... It's difficult to put all that words into one, but being who you are, being authentic is really important that people can understand what they would expect from you in, from one hour to the next is important. Um, and being approachable, because if you are, then people will come and talk to you. And if people then are struggling, they'll talk to you and you can work that through. There's nothing worse than people hiding that and then not achieving because then you don't get to your goal and then people yeah. get frustrated. So it's about having that one eye open, isn't it, to all the different people in your team and how you support them all to be successful in the way they can be. Yeah. And if not, you have to deal with it and you need to deal with that sensitively. Um, and in the NHS, obviously through a lot of paperwork and bureaucracy, um, but that also can be done in a nice way. Yeah. yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Um, and another thing you're, I know you're passionate about is women in technology and leadership. Um, why, why, why is it so important for you, do you think? I think um, it is women. And I suppose when I first, even when I first came in five and then when I was the CCIO, if I think back to some of the summer schools and the events I went to nationally, there was a lot higher percentage of male in there. I'm not a feminist at all. Yeah. Um, but for me, it's it's about equity for everybody, um, and and it's lovely now because actually when I go to national events now, it's a real real solid mix, um, and I think again that comes down to the shift since what turn around having more clinicians and nurses and HPs involved, um, and, and and personally where I work. You know, we've, I've got a really, really diverse workforce. Um, I've got some ladies in some real senior technician, technical roles. Um, and it's lovely. Um, but the diversity is across everything. And for me, it's around identifying who's best to do that job. And that can be anybody. 
But I suppose it's about ensuring that people at school feel confident that they can go into some of those tech roles. And that's why it's important for me as well as about opening up around apprenticeships and giving people uh, opportunities to come and work in those areas. Um, so I'm a passionate, I'm really passionate about women in tech, but I'm also passionate about professionalism and about making sure um, it's that opportunity for people to grow within informatics because sure. there's so many different places that you can work and different nuances and skills mm. it's a real fabulous workforce to be part of um, and becoming more and more and more important uh, it's not going away and even if you look at covid and some of you know the devastating jobs where people have been furloughed etc tech actually um in itself has boomed mm, of course it has yeah yeah oh you know the people that Oh, yeah, I furloughed most of my sales team, well, all of my sales team, for example, all of the the operational kind of people and so on. And the ones that I've, although outsourced and I had an option to, to, to kind of cut what we was doing with them and stuff, the people that I've ultimately kept on and stayed on is my marketing and, and techies that do the podcasting stuff and the graphic design stuff and, and all of that stuff, because it's, it was the skill set that we needed to keep face and carry on because um, you know, but from the outside, you probably wouldn't necessarily know that the whole company's been furloughed, except the people that we outsource stuff to. Um, and I know that te technically I couldn't furlough them, but I could have, you know, stopped the retainer that I'm paying them each month and said, look, my business is, yeah, so completely, completely agree and, and, and resonate. So um, let's talk about COVID then, because I want to, I want to address it for, for, um, for obvious reasons, you know, you're a senior leader, you've, you've, you've led your kind of IT team through this, this tragedy and, and you know, huge amounts of deaths and, and, and heartache and so on. Um, but I know that we've had conversations on the phone and so on and what, what it's done in terms of, you know, speeding up transformation and, and remove red tape and politics and the bureaucracy in, in certain areas. And um, I think you said, I think the, I've quoted it a couple of times, but I think it was you that said, you know, we've done, what we'd have done in two years in six to eight weeks um, in terms of, you know, the timeline of the strategy and moved it forward. So what, what, what's that been like in terms of working at such a pace and, and what COVID's meant for you being able to just get on with it really and make stuff happen? So, yeah, I think um, um, it, it, it's been unprecedented and working in the NHS you know, it, it has been a really tragic time and for a lot of people, a lot of people with work, um, obviously losing lots of lives um, of loved ones. And, and yeah, it's, it's, it's been hard. And I think for like my team, um, when at its peak, um, it was really full on and that was really, really quite testing. So our staff, where we were trying to get hundreds of people working from home and hundreds of people it being able to talk to the loved ones in really difficult circumstances and not only at Bolton do we provide services for the hospital and the community we also provide services for all GPs in Bolton and CCG so we had it for health across Bolton yeah. that we brought not only the hospital but all the GPs about working so differently overnight and people working from home and shielding and protecting them so there were long days and um, there was, um, you know, so an inundated amount of work. But I have to say, 
we we used our team differently so we used our trainers to support in the technology and the driving some of that and giving some of that kit out because we were having to give hundreds and hundreds of laptops and yeah and um, them about how do you do it at home and stuff like that but then going on to the wards also our epr team were having to change things in the epr really rapid and fast around covid um, and then we've done all sorts of great technology as well. Like we've put AI in uh, into radiology, which is looking at chest X-rays of patients with COVID, which are real, real innovative things. Cool. Um, yeah, I've seen um, <laughs> Dr. Rizwan. Um, yeah, Dr. Malik. Yeah, yeah so he's been in that, and that has been absolutely amazing for the clinicians in the organisation. But all those projects normally in the NHS would take some time and we've not had any extra staff. Um, so it's really been firefighting and you're firefighting of what is that priority of that day or that scheme. And that's been done over a matter of weeks, which would normally be months and years. Um, but saying that, um, it's been really positive. And although my team are exhausted, um, and they've worked wonderful across the whole of informatics and BI. I've been like, doing so many reports, national reporting, and up through the night because of all the different demands on them to deliver, which is the same across the NHS. Mm. I'm really proud of my team that they've been so responsive, and where other people obviously work from home, they've had to keep going. Um, so that's been really important. But the, the command and control has been key. And I think normally people would say in the NHS, there is bureaucracy, there's paperwork and, you know, extra. And obviously we have meetings once a month and capital meetings, financial meetings, and you have to wait for that to take a business case. I think one of the benefits in COVID, uh, and I think an element of that will stay, is the command and control where you're having decisions made daily. And so in our organisation, we had bronze in the morning, it went to silver and it went to gold, which are the execs. So on a daily basis, you've got um, a response about what you had to put paper in. Yeah. But it was quick, it was responsive, and then you could be responsive to the action of that. Yeah. And, and that has been testament to the organisation and everybody and all the managers and <clears throat> all the clinicians and staff working within the, the NHS. It, it's lovely to see them coming together in really difficult conditions. Yeah. Um, but the command and control has been key, and that's where it's been really slick and fast-paced, and then you can move on rather than wait, um, yeah. because we couldn't, obviously. Um, but it's been unprecedented, the amount of work we've had to do. And then coming out of that now, as we start to, start to talk about the reset, because things are put in fast, homework is put in fast, we need to go back and reflect on all those licensing costs. Yeah. Um, COVID's not going away. So so we need to support more agile working. Yeah. Even from yesterday, uh, Boris's new um, information on one plus meters in the organization, we're keeping it at two. Yeah. <laughs> um, those sort of things have to be managed and therefore a different technology is needed. We've done a lot of virtual consultation work, but then we need to go back and then put some policy and parameters in place oh. to make sure that... And optimise it as well, right? Make sure it's being used. Absolutely. Absolutely. But you would have times to do that. And I suppose that we already had a big programme of works. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and this is from on top. But you start coughing as we start talking about COVID, eh? Oh, yeah. Sorry. So, yeah, <laughs> I'm going for the antibody test tomorrow. Oh, there so, we go. 
We'll see. We'll see. There we go. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Awesome. So let's let's talk about some personal bits then, because I know that you're a lover of dogs, um, um, and so you. Well, you haven't got. Would you say you still got a puppy? Puppy or not? You. It must be what two years old now. Yeah, it'll always be my puppy. Yeah. So, so, so you and you had. Uh, you mentioned earlier you had a German Shepherd instead of going on a honeymoon. You got a German Shepherd. I did. So I, I, I got married on Saturday and picked my dog up on the Monday and I had two weeks off with my. Uh, Mar- it was called Marvin, big black German Shepherd, and uh, I had him till he was fourteen. Broke my heart to lose him. He was a fabulous dog. And I've had dogs all my life growing up as a child. And now I've got my cockapoo, who's my, who's my baby. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what about um, your family life? So you've got, have you got two two boys, is it? I have, yes. So I've got yeah. Alex, that's 20. He's yeah. a barber um, and a drummer. And um, I've got Rowan, who's 17, and he's at college doing professional construction. And uh, Porter, another big shopping retail company. Um, so he's raking it in over COVID. He's a happy boy. So, but Alex is now happy because obviously he can start to plan to go back to work. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah it's probably been hard for him. Um, no hair to cut except, uh, except the ones in the household, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and what about in terms of, you know, you've got, a lot of pressure on you you've got a job with high responsibility and stuff um is there anything you struggle do you struggle to switch off for example uh this year has been hard uh, and it has because i've just also completed my digital academy masters in health informatics yeah uh, just completed my dissertation and i think um having a busy job which all cio jobs are anyway and a long commute um and long hours it's really important to get your work-life balance and sometimes that's hard. Um, I find that now is, is you've got to look at your well-being. Um, I tend to listen to um, audio books going to work, which keep me calm, and then play loud music or do phone calls to people like you, Jack. And yeah, I know. Whenever people. we speak, it's always at the end of the day in your car or in the morning when you're driving. It is, it is. But I think, you know, that's a good reflective time. I try Mm. to sort of leave it, if I can, behind. It's not always simple. Um, And now now I'm not doing my Masters. I I say that uh, it feels really good because I have got more downtime. I think that was quite unprecedented, really. It's been a really difficult two years, but fabulous as well in my learning. Um, um, But, um, yeah, just enjoying enjoying life enjoying some sunshine um downtime lots of audio books because as i say reading is not the the best for me so uh, i like audio books um, yeah what are you reading at the minute pardon? what are you reading at the minute um or listening oh, to i can't remember what it's called um flat share i think it was yeah. do you so do you read or, or listen to um fictional or non-fictional books I, I tend to listen to uh, fictional, but I this one's just a girly rom com. But the um, I do like a good murder. Yeah. <laughs> I do like Hopefully, just reading about them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, um, it's good distraction. I also like a good murder podcast before I go to bed, just to like freak me out before I go to sleep. There we go. Yeah. Wow. Just before you go to bed. <laughs> it's a good distraction. You can't think of anything else. Yeah. Can you? 
Cool. So, uh, a good podcast before you go to bed it always helps you sleep. Yes. Yeah. Now I um I need to get back into my routine of it because I just I love reading, love listening to audiobooks, love listening to podcasts. I, and I'm good with the podcast, but certainly could be reading a lot more than I am at the minute because it does it it does you know it's it's like also when you you know exercise and stuff like that you know you can't think of anything else whilst you're doing it because you know and if you do you then you have to reread the bloody page and it's just annoying um so so yeah no it's um good well anyway it's about finding those times in your life that you can and my commute is a perfect time to have some reflection and some downtime so you need to find them too. And I say that to everybody. It's a stressful job. We've got to find a balance, mm. find those little times, but also have really good friends. And I think in the CIO world, we're really good that actually there's a lot of CIOs nationally really support each other. And it is important. Because sometimes you can feel quite lonely, um, even in an organisation. And about reaching out to your peers is really important because we're all feeling the same. Yeah, yeah. No, nice. Nicely put, nicely put. Well, um, it's been a pleasure to get to know the person behind the job title. So thank you so much for being on and I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Jack. Lovely to speak to you as always. You too. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to that episode of the PE podcast. If you like what you heard, please make sure that you share this episode via your social media channels as it really does help us to gain traction in promoting this podcast series. Please make sure that you also subscribe to the channel that you're listening via as you'll then get notifications as soon as we release our next podcast episode. Thank you.